what is the forward-looking distribution that's being used to price? Okay, so you, you can go forward and play, please. Thanks. So as we push it up, what happens? As we push up, if you look in the top right corner, your distribution moves continuously to the right. Okay, so we're moving continuously to the right-hand side. As it starts to come down, it goes back to where it was. What's the other move you can do? Well, you can change the slope. So as we become increasingly flat on the surface, we become an increasingly log-normal distribution. Okay, so we have a long right-hand tail. As we increase the slope of the line, the mass of the distribution, the bottom right, moves to the right-hand side and we see a long left tail. So your slope determines where your mass is. In terms of left or right, your uh, level determines the range of the distribution. And then finally, what we can do is we can control the curvature, pieces of paper coming together. It doesn't have much of an effect on the short term, but if you look in the bottom corner, the long term is affected quite a lot by the curvature of, of, of the surface. So that's just trying to show you, essentially, as that volatility surface moves, throughout time, depending on what people, what their views are. This is just an example to say we, we, we essentially know that if we model the surface in three ways, the level of it, the slope of it, the curve of it, we essentially know what's going to happen in terms of how the views are going to change over time. So not only can you, be, you, can you use this from, a, let's say, an ESG point of view, you don't actually have to simulate the ESG, it's given to you right here. This distribution is then consistent with what you're using to hedge as well. So you, you're simulating the ESG and hedging in a consistent framework where you have the distribution for nothing. You don't have to, there's no point simulating anymore, actually, you don't need to. Okay, so that's the first part of the problem, where we've got kind of halfway. Then there's this Ross recovery theorem, which is, I think, quite remarkable. I mean, for 50 years they thought this was impossible, and now Stephen Ross comes out and says, well, you know, it might be possible. Okay, so this is not one I made, unfortunately, but it was, it's a very, very nice one, actually. It's very spring-themed, to give you a hint. Okay, so let's go to the recovery theorem. Now, that looks pretty esoteric, but it's not, actually. It's very, very simple. So let's, let's read it from right to left, okay? Um, what does it mean? If I'm in the real world, I've just represented it with an F. The real world is an F, right? How do I get to the risk-neutral world? From the real world to the risk-neutral world, what do I need to do? I need to remove the risk. That's what that Greek letter there, Epsi, stands for. So the real world discounted by the risk preferences is equal to the risk neutral. The risk neutral, you add back the risk preferences, you get the real world. Okay, that's all the relationship is. You get fancy names for that Greek symbol, pricing kernels, stochastic discount factor. It doesn't actually matter what it is. People call it a whole bunch of things. Um, it just represents the risk preferences of an individual at any point in time. The risk preferences specific to an individual so that they become risk neutral given a certain situation. Okay, so we know the one side. We know the risk neutral now. We've just gone through that whole process of, of accessing it. But we're faced with two unknowns and we only have one known. So how do you, I mean, if you give that to anyone, you say, listen, that, that's impossible. I, I can't solve it. With, give me more information and I can try. 
So Ross came along and essentially his recovery theorem said, let's make some assumptions about uh, individuals. Let's make some assumptions about risk preferences. If we make those assumptions and we know that they're wrong, we're not worried that we're not we're not arguing that they're right or wrong. We're just saying if we make those assumptions, we can then make the impossible possible. We can get two unknowns from one piece of known information. Okay, and I'm not going to go through the theorem now, but the assumptions are fairly important. So so I'll just go through them quickly. So the first one, markets complete and arbitrage free. Complete basically means any bet that I would like to take, I can take. So I can trade anything that I want. Again, clearly not true, um, but we'll live with it for now because it's the same assumption almost all derivatives literature makes. Uh, arbitrage free, we've got that by construction in our, uh, in our fitting process, so we don't have to worry about that one. The second one is the underlying takes a finite number of states. So this is merely for simplicity. It's actually been relaxed, but if I'm faced with a very, very difficult problem, let's work with a simplified version of that problem first, and then if I can get a solution there, then maybe I can get a solution in a more complex space. But it's, it's basically saying, and it actually fits with reality. If you think about a stock price, you can't have half a cent in a stock price. So a stock price can only take on finite levels. An index can only take on finite levels. So I'm, I'm actually okay with that one. Now, the third one is uh, something that harkens back again to perhaps university days for some, is that the, tr the idea of the transition probability matrix. Okay. It's very, very simple. It's, if, I'm, if my price is 100 today, what's the probability of it going to 110 tomorrow? What's the probability of it staying at 100? What's the probability of it going to 95 tomorrow? What's the probability of transitioning from one price today to another price tomorrow? Okay, I can start at any level and I can end at any level and I have a probability attached to those two combinations. That's why it comes out as a matrix. So it's the probability of transitioning from one price to another price. So what does irreducible mean? It just means I might not be able to go from 100 to 150 in one day, but give me enough time and I'll be able to go from 100 to 150. Give me enough time and I'll be able to go from any starting level to any ending level. That's what irreducible means. Um, time independence, if, I, if, the, if the, I have a probability of going from 100 to 105, which is equal to 10% today, next week, if my price is 100, I also have a 10% chance of going from 100 to 105. So as time moves on, the probabilities don't change. Again, not true. The world is uh, unfortunately not static. And then finally, this pricing kernel. The pricing kernel. Uh, it's, what it's essentially saying is that the pricing kernel is path independent. So my risk preferences, that's what you must think of it as. So if my price goes from 100 to 150 and falls down to 100 again in two days, I'm going to have the same level of risk aversion at that second 100 as I have today at the price of 100. Again, that's clearly not true. If things fall, people start to get a little bit more risk averse but it makes the solution possible. Okay, so we, we're essentially asking, we know the assumptions aren't true, um, but it makes the solution possible. Is the information that we get still worth looking at? Okay, so, oh, for those interested in the maths, it's over here. You can look at this in your own time. If you have trouble sleeping, that helps a lot.
Okay, so it's a four-step process, right? We've solved the first two, two steps already. We had to work out this risk-neutral distribution surface. It's a difficult problem to solve, but we solved it. And, well, not we've solved it. A lot of other people have solved it a long time ago. We've just come and given it our own spin. The third step is essentially where all the blood, sweat, and tears goes into. So you've got the surface. How do we work out those transition probabilities? And this is what Edry was talking about earlier in that that's where all the hard work goes into, getting that one picture. That's essentially what took us a long, long time to do, is get a picture. And um, the reason is, is because it's actually an ill-posed problem. Uh, what that means is that you change the input slightly, you get a very, very different output coming out. So it's not stable at all. So there's ways of solving it, and the engineering way of solving it is essentially, if something's very unstable, add structure. Okay? So basically it's, I don't want the solution to be too far away from what I think it should be, uh, in, in kind of layman's terms. Um, and it's a process called regularization. But essentially what it means is that we have some kind of view of what this, these transition probabilities should look like. So solve the problem, but also make sure that it's close to what the view that we think it should look like. Again, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to affect our solution that comes out, but it's the only way we can solve it practically. Okay, so what does this mean, this, this picture? The mountains on the, on the diagonal. So the mountains on the diagonal mean that we have the highest probability of staying at the same price, and then as we flatten out to the sides, we see that the left-hand um, slope is longer than the right-hand slope, which means that we have a higher prob probability of decreasing in price than we do of increasing. And you'll see that those mountains are actually not on the diagonal exactly, they're slightly up, which is accounting for the uh, positive drift in the underlying asset. And from this, then we just apply the recovery theorem. So the Black-Scholes is a transforming volatility to price. The recovery theorem is transforming transition probabilities to a distribution. It's just a transformation. Again, meters to feet. And so this is what comes out. This is the forward-looking three-month distribution. In blue is the real-world probabilities that the derivatives market is using to price their assets, uh, price their options at any point in time. The black line is the risk-neutral equivalent. So the difference between the two is what we've, we've added back the risk preferences in, in the market at any point in time, which I think is pretty remarkable, actually. Okay, so finally, how do we actually use this information in practice? Okay, and I'm going to focus on top 40. Um, Index options, we've done it for currency as well. You can do it for uh, international markets much, much easier. There's a lot more data available. Uh, we just chose what we had. Okay, this is, this is the last one um, of the four. It's the shape that you see is pretty similar to what you see even when you don't see the shape. I don't know if that helped you at all or not, but. <laughs> okay. So we're lucky enough to have a database of trades going back to 2005, uh, option trades going back to 2005, quite a good one. And so what we've gone through is we've gone through this lengthy process of fitting volatility surfaces to this data, which is a one, it's a one-line sentence, but it's a lot of hard work uh, embedded in there. Um, we use the SVI model, which was introduced by Jim Gatherall. 
when he was at JP Morgan, it stands for Stochastic Volatility Inspired, if you wanted to know, otherwise just SVI model. And it allows us to interpolate between the trades and extrapolate further. Okay, so we can get a really, really long volatility skew out to much further than anything we can trade. And we can get that out in a way which is arbitrage free. What we can also do is we only see trades that happen according to suffix expiries. Suffix expiries happen every three months uh, on the third Thursday of March, June, September, and December. So essentially we have three-month intervals. We don't see anything in between there. So to fill the, we have to fill the gaps between the months as well. And we do that in a particular way. And then we can also extrapolate as well um, if we want. We generally don't go further than two years. Uh, it's, I mean, yeah, again, for those that have to... Uh, hedge your long-term liabilities or embedded guarantees. It's a serious problem going even two years out. Um, so we generally, that's the maximum that we'll, that we'll look at. Most of our data ends around 15 months, kind of, our, our usable data. From that, we've got weekly surfaces, and we're going to create weekly risk-neutral distribution surfaces. We're also going to look at applying the recovery theorem, and we recover the three-month real-world distribution, forward-looking. All of this is forward-looking by construction. From that, we're going to suck out the four moments as a summary of the distribution and then ask the simple question, was all this effort worth it? Okay. Is the information that we actually get of any use to us? Okay. And clearly it is. I mean, if people are starting to look at the VIX or have been looking at the VIX for a long time as a measure of uncertainty, they're at least looking at the second moment of that risk-neutral distribution. That's what the VIX is. It's the volatility of the risk-neutral distribution. So I'm going to give you a couple examples of how to use this information in various forms and guises and various applications. And then finally, we'll look at a simple timing strategy from a portfolio management point of view. Because these are forward-looking signals, the changes in the signals should give us some information, hopefully, about how the market is actually going to change in the future. Okay, so this is a very colorful plots, essentially it's just a box plot. Okay, so every week we calculate a risk neutral distribution surface. This is the three month distribution over time in a box plot form. Okay, so the red is the negative tail, the black line is essentially the three month forward, how it changes over time, and the green is the positive tail. And what we can do is we can use this in a descriptive sense. Uh, so, as I was talking about, you use the VIX as a measure of, let's say, regimes. If you want, anything above a certain level becomes a volatile regime. Anything below becomes an uncertain regime. The VIX is just the width of that distribution. That's essentially what it is. We're just showing a bit more than that. The one nice thing from a risk management point of view is that you have a forward-looking value at risk estimate right there, built in. That fifth percentile is your implied value at risk over time, three months forward-looking, which is quite difficult to go... Um, Longer term, even if you're using models like Gartsch and that kind of stuff. And again, this is all risk neutral, so you've got to use it with a little bit of caution, but the information is actually embedded in the relative changes over time. So even though your level might not be right, if you see that your distribution moves, that's still giving you information. Okay. And it kind of follows our, what we expect if we look at the market. You know, it widens when the crisis happens slowly decreases thereafter, 2012, 2013, very, very narrow, slowly starting to increase now as well as uncertainty rises, even though volatility probably hasn't risen as much as we would have expected given the high level of uncertainty and um, SA-specific factors. 
Okay, the other way of using it, of course, is in your uncertainty cone. So today is on the left-hand side of that point. We have a view about the future which is embedded into the whole risk-neutral distribution. So the black line is essentially the forward, and that gives you the uncertainty around the forward, uh, the bands of uncertainty going forward. The hotter the color, or the more red the color, the more likely we're going to end up in that zone kind of thing. So again, I'm just showing here with 90% uh, confidence where we expect the, the, the underlying asset to move going forward. Okay, so this is all just descriptive and perhaps prescriptive usage of the risk neutral. What about the real world? So for this, what we did is we're going to look at a comparison of the risk neutral moments versus the real world moments. Okay. Okay, so in the underlying gray in the background, that is the performance of the top 40 total return, just to give you some kind of basis. The black line is the risk neutral expected return and volatility, and the blue line is the real world expected return and volatility, and I've annualized these numbers. Okay, so first thing that comes out, real world expected return always higher than risk neutral expected return. Risk neutral expected return is just the cost of carry. It's the rate, of, it's the forward rate. Uh, it's, risk-free minus dividend yield kind of thing. And interestingly, if you look at that blue expected return, on average, it, it moves a lot, right? So clearly, the derivatives market is not pricing the expected return in too, um, or taking it into account that much. It's rather taking volatility into account, perhaps. But on average, the real-world moment is around 15.9%, where if you look for the same period of time, the top 40 actual return was... 15.9%. Um, so on average, it's pretty pretty much spot on, uh, which is what we want what we wanted to see. Now the question becomes: Are those movements in the moment? Is there information there or not? From the volatility point of view, the lines are basically on top of each other. That's meant to be. Okay. From option theory, the volatility that you use to the price to price an option is your best guess of the forward-looking actual volatility of the underlying asset. So we've just gone through this process of working out what the forward-looking volatility of the asset is, and so they should match up with each other, except for a slight risk premium attached to the volatility skew. Skewness and ketosis. Uh, skewness is an interesting one. Um, it's almost inverse to what the pattern on ketosis is. Okay, just out of out of interest for just to start with, on skewness, the real world skewness is always almost always lower than the risk-neutral skewness. We're adding back the risk preferences. We're more concerned about crashes than we are in a risk-neutral world. We then value skewness more highly, and that's why skewness comes out. Okay? During the crash, skewness goes towards zero, and ketosis goes down as well. So what's actually happening there? And it's much, much easier to understand it from a volatility skew point of view. When the crash came, volatility went to like 80%. Okay? But it wasn't a slope that I showed you earlier. It was basically a flat line. People just wanted protection. They didn't really bother about adding a premium to, to put options. The volatility was already high enough that they didn't need to. So you've got a very, very flat surface coming out. That's why your skew goes to zero. And when volatility is incredibly high, even if you have a large move in the underlying, that's normal because your volatility is so high. So the ketosis, which is the size of the tails, actually decreases during a crisis period. So now what we did is we did a 
a practical man's version of a proper statistical test. So we're basically saying, is this information useful or not? Okay, how, how are we gonna measure that? Um, well, let's use a practical setting. So we have four moments, risk neutral, four moments, real world. We're gonna run a strategy based on the changes in each of those four moments. And in, well, we're gonna run four independent strategies based on the four, the changes in the four moments. Okay, so if today's estimate of expected return, skewness, and ketosis is better than last week's, we're going to hold the top 40 for the coming week. If it's worse, we're gonna go fully into cash. Okay, and volatility is the opposite. If volatility is lower than last week's, we're gonna hold the top 40. If it's higher, we're gonna go into cash. Um, extreme timing strategy. I'm not, this, is, this is in no way an investment pitch to say, please invest according to this strategy. Um, this is just a simple way of saying, we're using the same underlying information, we're using the same trading framework. We haven't tried to optimize anything at all, so this is not a data mining exercise. We're just asking, how does the real world performance compare to the risk neutral performance? Was it worth going through that extra effort to get the real world information out? And for those reasons, I haven't included costs. I mean, there's the same number of trades in any way, so costs will affect both similarly. So this is the graph that comes out. So the black line, again, is just a benchmark for the top 40 total return. There's a lot of lines going on there, uh, far more than any presenter manual says that you should ever display. But the main takeaway is the blues are the real world strategies and the reds are the risk neutral strategies. The blues beat the reds. That's all we wanted to show. So it is worth going through this extra effort of getting real world information than risk neutral information if we're using it on a practical setting. So let's look at some of the numbers that, that come out, okay? So top 40 is on the left-hand side, total return, again, just as a benchmark. So if we look at expected return and volatility and sharp ratios in your third line there, if you wanna compare risk-adjusted returns, all the real-world moments, which are the four strategies on the right-hand side, dominate the top 40 total return. And the, the real-world moments, strategies, also dominate the four risk-neutral strategy moments as well. So this information that we're using is, a, uh, let's say, purer than the risk-neutral form that we had before. Again, I'm, I'm not purporting to say that this is a proper statistical test in any way. I'm just saying that if we're gonna use this information, we're gonna use it practically, this is the first hurdle that it essentially has to uh, cross. And it seems to be crossing it quite nicely. And again, this is essentially just something that we have to point out uh, when we go and show clients is that this is not an investment strategy. You need to hedge your protection uh, or you need to have some form of protection if you're taking on an extreme timing strategy. So even though your drawdowns are decreased quite a lot, they are still quite high. Okay, so just to recap what we've done, uh, hopefully I've tried to give you a flavor of why we think the volatility surface is a forecasting tool. It is the consensus estimate of all information in the derivatives market embedded into that one surface. There's a lot of estimation, there's a lot of calibration issues, but essentially that's the same as in any, mar any market. You, know? you can have confidence bands around that, that, that as well if you really want it. Um, then we say, well, if it's a forecasting tool, how do we get the information out? Well, the first thing is we estimate the risk-neutral distribution by going through that three-step process. Once we've done that, this recovery theorem now says, well, instead of just working with risk-neutral probabilities, you can actually just 
follow the recovery theorem, um, although it's difficult to implement, you can follow it and you can get out real-world forward-looking probability distribution estimates for the underlying asset. And this is just done for top 40. We've done uh, USDZR as well. So once you've got that information, you can use it in a range of different settings. So I've shown you, for example, how you can use it in portfolio management using tactical asset allocation. The value at risk can be used directly in a risk management system. You can use the VIX as you want from a regime identification point of view. There's a lot of applications, and a lot of central banks actually use this. Uh, bank of England, Central Bank, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, they're big on implied information. So hopefully uh, a good overview of why this is useful. And at the end of the day, it's just another market. you know. And even if it's completely in opposition to what your views are, it's still worth knowing that the, the way that the derivatives are being priced is very different to the way that you are viewing the future which I think is useful as well. It's a useful non-result, if you know what I mean. So thank you very much for the time. Um, hopefully useful, hopefully interesting. That's it. Thank you very much, Edmund. Um, uh, we do have some time for questions. Any questions right there at the back? Hi, Edmund. Thanks uh, for a very interesting talk. I've got, I've got a couple of questions, actually, um, if that's okay. First of all, um, I haven't obviously looked at the theorem, but what's your views on turning it on in its head? So let's say I want to enter a new market where there is no options market, and I want to get some sense of what that skew should be. Um, can, can you use that? No. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> no, you don't use the recovery theorem. Um, what, well, you could, but it would be very, very clunky. What you do then is essentially there's two ways of doing it. Um, the first way is you've got the history of the underlying assets, and you say, if I had to, if I had to make the product myself by delta hedging, right? If I delta hedge the asset with the actual underlying moves of the underlying, uh, well, the moves of the underlying what volatility would I have needed so that my delta hedge PNL was zero? And then I do that for options of different strikes, and I do it across a range of different times, and I take the average of that, and I get what's called a break-even volatility skew, because it's the volatility skew which, if I had delta hedged this thing in practice, would make my uh, PNL zero. You can add transaction costs if you want as well to create a proper market, but that's essentially your break-even volatility. The other way of doing it is you risk neutralize historical distribution. So you say, I have a historical distribution, um, and it's, it's a non-parametric way of doing it. So I have the historical distribution of the underlying asset, but it's not risk neutral. So change it in the smallest way possible so that the expected return is equal to the forward level, and then use that to price. Um, and changing in the smallest way possible is done by something called entropy minimization. Okay, thanks. I'm familiar with the first uh, strategy, not with the second. Um, thanks for that. Um, the second question is, or comment really, is um, in, in the volatility market, right, I think there's a, there's a very big backward-looking, actually, effect. 
where people are generally scared of being short gamma on your left side, hmm. right? Especially because it's so hard to get out of options once you're in them. And guys are generally buyers of skew. Um, how, how does that affect your, because I think, you know, so in, in effect, you're always going to have this, this steep skew, basically, and it's because people are willing to pay a higher premium for that left, especially the uh, options traders in banks, right? You'd rather be long gamma than short gamma. Hmm. So does that not distort what this is telling you? Yes. Yes, it does. Um, this method is only as good as the information that you're using at the, at the, as, the, as the inputs. So if you think that the skew is more a function of supply-demand than a function of the underlying views, then yes, that's going to come through. What you can do is you can make a correction for that, again, based on the, break e the, the difference between the break-even and the, and the, um, the break-even vol surface and the, the estimated vol surface, and you say the difference in that is, a, is some kind of measure of the influence of supply and demand, and then you can correct for that right at the end. But, yeah, I, I'm 100% I'm with you. It's, if, if we don't have enough trades... And if those trades are influenced by certain outliers, then that's going to come through in the results as well. And if you don't account for that in some way, either just by using confidence bands uh, or some kind of um, reversal of that effect, then that's going to come through. In our case, it, it, it is coming through, but the information is still useful. So we, we're happy for now, at least on a very high level, that the bias introduced from that is probably less than the bias introduced from the whole estimation procedure as a whole. Um, so controlling for that then just adds to your estimation error rather than your input error. So it's just which, which error do you want to control? All right, thank you. Sorry, last question. I apologize. <laughs> um, on, your, on your momentum strategy, um, I'm not so much interested in the risk-neutral versus real world. I'm more... Uh, in terms of your real world versus the total return on the top 40, right? Your total return, I mean, you're going to have, what, one, one or two trades because you enter the trade and that's it, and you reinvest into the, into the index. Whereas with your strategy, I mean, every time you trade, I don't know how many trades you are doing, so it's more a question about how many trades you do hmm. because a lot of times on these things, you know, you think you've got something that works, and actually, once you, once you start actually bringing in the transaction cost, because you're yeah. crossing but ask twice here, you're crossing it once on the index and once on your cash. Um, what are, just in terms of what were your results for that? Because, so if you I mean if you've done 50 trades, I don't know what period, 100 trades, then obviously the real world versus the total return that might be even below that. Can you just maybe tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, so there were 550-odd weeks in this period. Um, it's basically 10, 10 and a bit years. And I think there were around 260 to 280 trades in each of the strategies. So clearly, transaction costs are going to be massive. Um, but again... This is not a trading strategy. This is an information test. Okay, so in, in, 
our objective here was to say, was the real-world information better than the risk-neutral information? How you then use that practically after accounting for transaction costs, I would definitely never do something like this because it's, it's, it's kind of just madness, you know. Um, it's, it's far too risky, and like you say, the transaction costs will probably dwarf most of the difference between the, the, the top 40 itself and the strategy that you're running. A far more realistic way of introducing it is if you just do a tilting mechanism where you have, let's say, a, um, an index plus futures kind of position where you're doing long bonds on, on your futures component, so you're getting a little bit of uh, edge on that, that case from your cash, and then you slowly increase the futures or decrease the futures position depending on the signal that comes through. Um, it works out with cash management, and then you also get the, 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 the benefit from holding the long bonds. Right. Thanks for that. Pleasure. Yes, I think we've got time for one more question, if anybody else has a question. Just front left here. Uh, I think everybody will, will be relieved that I'm, I'm going to be asked a much less technical and possibly naive question. Uh, you, uh, you seem to suggest, or Edris suggested in his in introduction, this is a fairly new technique. Um, as it becomes more, more widespread, or the use of it becomes more widespread, will it then become less useful? <laughs> That's a difficult one to answer. It's from a pure informational point of view, yes. It, but it, not that it won't become more useful. The idea there is that the more that the information is priced incorrectly, the more efficient the market becomes. Right. So if there is information that we can get from the derivatives market, which is not as easily available from the primary markets, um, then yes, it's worth looking at it. But as you rightly say, as more people look at that, markets become more efficient. It becomes less useful to the individual, but as the collective, a more efficient market is better. So that's kind of my roundabout way of, of answering. Yeah, I think maybe just to add on to that, I, you do have a bit of a, an effect, almost of a disconnect between where information's coming from and where it's likely to be arbitraged out, potentially. So. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that as more and more people start using it, that, that the underlying would necessarily be more more effect, um, effective in terms of less arbitrage opportunities. But certainly, um, you know, there, there is the potential for that. Um, I would like to. So. Okay. I think that's time for for coffee then. Thank you.